Hey, so last week I, I mentioned uh, that when we were out at, in Chicago at, at Moody's Founders Conference, the theme there was for such a time as this, which is a, it's a phrase, it's a verse out of the book of Esther, and just remember those, remember the messages that we heard just resonated uh, with Cindy and I, and just the more I thought about them, I felt like there were some good words uh, for our church body. So I'm taking a, a couple of weeks and just settling down in the book of Esther and talking about some of that, some of the, the, some of the thoughts I've, ga- I've gathered have come from those and then some from my own studying and, and seeing some of the, some of the things that, f- that just flow through the passage on its own. So let me have you turn over to Esther. I, 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 we asked last week, and I know Esther's is not a book that we, we speak from a lot. Uh, it isn't a story that, you know, several of you indicated last week that uh, you, aren't, you aren't familiar with the story of Esther. It's just, it's this little uh, bi- biopic, really, that's just before you get to the book of Job and, and you get into the wisdom section of the Bible. So if you're trying to find it, if you go to the, like I said, if you go to the middle, you hit Psalms, and then if you go left, you're going to hit Job and then Esther. So she's going to be in there. I want to talk a little bit about mercy Mercy is a wonderful thing to receive. You know, when people say to you, I'm, I'm going to give you mercy in this situation, when you've really messed up and someone says, listen, I know what we could do, but we're going to show you mercy here. I actually got a grade one time. I got a grade card in college, and it came back, and I got a B, which I was really thankful for. Underneath it, the teacher had written grace, <laughs> which it was, yeah. It's like writing mercy. When people give you grace or mercy in a situation, it feels so good. You flip that over in describing some of our lives, that you're living at the mercy of others. And that's not such a good place to be. That's not such a good feeling to to live with uh, because a lot of your life is going to be tied into how is that person doing today or how's that person doing in this season? How are they if I'm at their mercy? Or what are their demands? Or what are the expectations they have of me? You know, what is it that I have to come through with to receive their mercy? Because I don't want to slide into receiving their wrath or to receiving, to receiving law from them. So you may be living in that at work. You may just feel like, boy, this person, they're keeping you there just because of mercy, or they're allowing you to lead the, this project because of mercy or whatever that is that can be like a bondage or a weight that's constantly on you if you feel like you're at the mercy of other people how much do they need you do they really need me or are they just keeping me around just puts a seems like it's not only a leash but it seems like there's some kind of timer on on a life that goes like that it's unnatural to us to be at the mercy of other people we don't want to be at anyone's mercy we want to be able to live our lives our way. Problem is, that's the way really a lot of us are coming to God. You know, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, you can go ahead and speak, but this is where I am. So, so here you are looking at, in the Bible at a life totally at the mercy of other people. There's a slice where our life is totally at the mercy of God. It was in one of the worship songs we sang, the fact that you're still breathing and that you're going to take another breath, that's just the mercy of God on us. The fact that, that he waited on some of us so long to put our faith in Jesus or was patient while we constantly tell people, I don't, I don't need that, I don't believe that, maybe someday. He just patiently endured that. That's what the Psalms, that's what the scriptures will say. That's his mercy that we're living under. 
Boy, to live under God's mercy, it calls him rich in mercy with the love that he loved us. Boy, that's a great place to be. To be at the mercy of people, that's not so great. And that is, that is Esther's life. That is, her, that is her story. And we're looking, at, we're looking at Esther's life and we're looking at these couple of weeks as just an invisible God in a visible mess. You say invisible God because one of the things they wrestled with about the book of Esther is you never find the name God. You don't find any of his names in this book. You don't find anybody praying in this book. You get a, you get a, it's implied that they're going to be praying at one point. You're not in Jerusalem. They're not doing temple worship. They don't miss temple worship. They haven't gone home to Jerusalem like they were supposed to. It just seems like God through this book is so invisible, and yet he's incredibly visible. And, and it's in other places of the Bible where God's people are experiencing his blessing and everything's coming together. The book of Esther is a mess. It's just one mess after another. We were in chapter one last week and we saw this massive party that the king threw. And then at the end of the party, he wanted his wife to come in, his beautiful queen to come in and just stand before all these drunken men. And she knew better than that. So she says no. And so he doesn't know what to do. And so the men tell him what they would like to do at home and say, you need to come up with a law that forbids her to ever come into your presence again. If she didn't come when you called her, she's never going to come. So erratic as he is, he writes that law and Vashti the queen is just put somewhere in the palace far, far from him. He's just an erratic. In fact, I was thinking about that this week. We're going to talk about some different kings this morning as we go through. Think of all the kings through the Bible that are just erratic and unpredictable. In my, in my quiet time, I started reading Matthew this morning. Herod, you know, finds out that the wise men have tricked him. So he says, let's murder all the baby boys, you know, up in Bethlehem area. Just how erratic and violent and unpredictable kings are as a way of just letting us know our king, he's completely safe and he's completely predictable and he's completely, he's not completely predictable, but he's completely good. So just funny how scripture will constantly make that comparison of what you're living and what you're seeing with and, and how our God is. So it's unnatural. It's unnatural to be at the mercy of others. It's, un, it's not a place that we want to be or stay there. It brings a high level of uncertainty to our life because what's going to happen today? How's it going to be? One of, one of the speakers at Moody that week said that, you know, when we live with it, we, we like a measure of uncertainty in our life. You don't want life to be boring and routine all the time. Some of you might. But we like a level of uncertainty. But the higher that uncertainty goes, the more uncomfortable we get. And, and if you're Esther moving through this book that has her name, boy, you are living in uncertainty day after day after day. And, and how do you do that? And how, how do you do that in a place where you're not really sure how God is going to show up or even whether God is going to show up. So here she is. Her life is at the mercy of others. We've watched chapter one. We didn't see God in chapter one. If, if you didn't see God in chapter one, you're certainly not going to see him in chapter two. So let me read Esther chapter two and get a sense of, of what life is like for her when we first meet her. It says, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated and Remember, in, we say in most of our history books, we learned this man as Xerxes I. Yeah, when the anger of King Hezarus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, 
let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. Well, this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And I referred to that last, last week. The Babylonians, they came down from where Iraq is, and they just invaded, and they wiped out the, the nation of Israel. It was God's judgment on them. They, they came in three different waves, and every time they came, they took people from, from Israel and brought them back to Babylon. When Jeconiah was the king that they went in on the first wave, and they took him out. And so Mordecai was one of the, his grandparents probably were in that first wave of captives that was taken. So was Daniel, is taken at that time. So he's been there the whole duration of the captivity. He's been there when the Babylonians conquered them, and then he's been there when the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians. So he's been there a long time. In verse 7, it tells you that he's bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after the, being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king Hazarias, to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. 
He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal, with royal generosity. Yeah. That is not like your average chapter in the Bible when you read through things like this. And if you're new to the Bible, you just read a chapter like this and you think, are you kidding me? This is stuff that God, and so is the next verse, and so God killed King Ahasuerus. It's not. He, it's people that, people that thrive and people that seem to do well. This is a summary of some of your lives when you live at the mercy of other people. If you have an, an addicted spouse or if you have a controlling boss or if you have a passive person in your life, you're at their mercy, but it's the complete opposite of someone that tends to be controlling. Or if you have somebody that's just erratic, they're good, but just every now and then you, they just get erratic and you don't, you don't know what's coming, coming in, in those instances. It can, be, it can be hard to find God. He can become unseen when you live at the, at the mercy of other people. And then you can have times when an unseen God can seem to have abandoned you. These were people that had disobeyed God over hundreds of years, ignored all of the warnings that he'd given to them about the prophets, and finally had been taken out of their land and placed in another land. And there they were. And there were prophets that God would send to that other land. Ezekiel is in Babylon. Daniel is in Babylon. So that they would know that they were still his people and he still had a word for them and he still had a purpose for them. And we were talking last week, one of the purposes was when these 70 years are done, I'm going to make a way for you to come back to Israel and you're all to come back and we're, we're, going, to, we're going to start over. And so the 70 years are up. Cyrus, who I think is Xerxes, Hazarias' uh, grandfather, he issues this decree, all the Jews can go back to the land and they can rebuild their temple. And then they can rebuild their walls under Nehemiah. So every, people are going back, but a lot of the Jews, they're just comfortable. Life is pretty good in Babylon. It's not, you know, it's not what it used to be and maybe not what it could be, but it's good. It's good enough. And so they just choose to stay there. That, that happens in churches, doesn't it? I mean, you get a glimpse in a worship song, you get a glimpse in a word, or you get a glimpse in a testimony of what might be, and that could be really good, but you don't know. You don't know, and so pretty good is okay, you know? That's a great stream of commercials, isn't it? Pretty good is not good. It's not good enough, but for a lot of us, we live with pretty good, with pretty good, and so they just stayed there, and staying there... God is with them. We saw last week that he's going to be faithful to his purpose, even if we're not. And so he, he continues to work and he continues to navigate. But when you don't see him, you sure can feel like he's abandoned, like he's abandoned you. I mean, we all want to believe that God's under control. We want to believe he's got a plan. We want to believe that he's got power enough to carry out his plan. But then you have these moments or seasons or crises where you wonder, okay, but I don't see any of that in my life. I don't see a plan, and I don't see that God's power is coming to change things, to change me, change the people around me. So where is he? You can feel, and maybe you never say, oh, God's abandoned me. Maybe you never say that, but you might say that he isn't with you the way he's with other people. I was sharing Monday night in, in the class uh, last week, we were, working with, we were working with someone one time and we were trying to get them to receive just how deeply loved they were by God. And they just were honest with us and they just, they just admitted that, that they don't believe that God loves them the way he loves other people. 
but there was just something about, I think it was a woman, I think something about her, that God just didn't love her like he loved others, which is a lie, but some of us can live in that, in that lie, that God just isn't with me like he's with other people. He's not working a plan for me like he's working a plan for other people. An unseen God, it can make you feel like you've been abandoned in some, in some ways, even though you, don't, you go there. The situation, your situation doesn't point to what God's doing. You don't have clarity about what he's doing. You're not, you're not sure. And so here's Esther. If she's trying to find God in her situation, if they're trying to find God in chapter 1, you know, when their queen gets, gets deposed and gets shunned just because she wouldn't go to a party, she wouldn't show up at a party. Where is God in that? But the reality is maybe, like a lot of us live, chapter one, really don't care, it really didn't affect me. You know, if you're Mordecai, if you're Esther, it really didn't, you know, that, that's through the queen, okay, she's never going to see her, he's going to get another queen. But somehow things that don't affect us can a lot of times circle back around and affect us in a huge way which is Esther chapter 2, that God maybe seems to abandon her. There's not a lot in Esther's control. We talk about being at the mercy of others. It's out of her control where she lives. It's out of her control who she lives with. Her cousin took her in. It's out of her control how she looks. We're told that, that her body is very nice and her, her face is very nice. That's kind of what we know about her in the same, same way we know about a few other Bible women. She's known by what she is and not who she is. What, what kind of work she's going to do, all those things are out of her control. They're, they're things that are being decided about her. When you read through this chapter, things happen to Esther. She's not making things happen. We're not reading a book where, where she's making decisions. And so because of those decisions, God's work is, is advanced and people know God and people come to find him. We're reading a book where she is totally at other people's mercy. She's in other people's control. Look at verse 6. It says, when it talks about her cousin and her parents, they had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away. Twice we know that they were carried away. And then it says in, in verse 7 about Mordecai, that he's bringing up Hadassah. That's Esther, the daughter of his uncle, and she had neither father or mother. She's a young woman, a beautiful figure to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So she's taken in there. And then look in verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken. So she's taken. In verse 15, it says, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai had told her. And, she's when, and then in verse 16, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, look at the end of verse 11, when it says, you know, her cousin Mordecai worried about her, he'd go check on her. It says in 11, Every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem, to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. See, through the book of Esther, things happen to Esther. She's not making things happen. She's a life that's at the mercy of, of other people. Annie and I went to a, a Route 1, uh, I don't know what to call it, a Route 1 training or a Route 1 orientation the other day. If you're not familiar, Route 1 is this wonderful ministry in Boston and Worcester and in Springfield that ministers to women who are, who are in the men's strip clubs. 
just to bring them the love of Jesus and to let them know that they are as valuable to him as, as anyone is. And so we went to that on Tuesday. I come back and I'm studying and it just dawned on me, Esther is a trafficked woman. Never thought of her that way. Never laid that, you know, never looked with contemporary eyes at Esther. But what is she? She's a woman who's taken because of her looks and brought in to be used by men. Except she's not even going to get paid. She's going to be brought in, and that's going to be her life. You know, you might read this, and, and uh, it's just really strange. Even at the, at the conference, they talked about it. Should Esther have done that? Should she have fought that? I mean, some of us may read this chapter and say, man, why didn't she do what Daniel did? Daniel wouldn't eat the king's food. He took a stand. There's some big differences between Daniel and Esther. You know, in that culture, it's huge that Daniel is a man and Esther is not because you are living in a man's world, in a man's culture in those days. And so Daniel, Daniel would have some privileges that Esther could never, ever get to. But Daniel, he's taken in that first wave, like I said, with Jeconiah, when the king is taken, Nebuchadnezzar, the order was to find the best of the best and bring them to Babylon so that they could be trained to serve in the Babylonian kingdom. So Daniel's in like an internship program. And so when they serve him all of this king's food that would be unclean by Jewish law, Daniel's got a little more leverage because of who he's going to be. Esther has no leverage like that to say, you know, to say, you know, I really, I'm willing to go in and talk to the king all night, but I'm not willing to go in and do that. She's got no, there's no leverage for her. Daniel also, he can bring an, he can bring an alternative. He can bring an option to, to the people that are guarding him. He does. Remember, he says, listen, let us eat our, our diet for 10 days. And if at the end of 10 days, if we don't look healthier than everybody else, you know, go ahead. We'll go back to the king's diet. But he can offer him this thing. And you know how the Daniel plays out. Daniel, they eat the food, the, the food they wanted for 10 days. They look healthier and better than the other ones. And so they're allowed to go on. Esther can't do that. She can't, she can't negotiate in this. She can't negotiate because she's a woman. She can't negotiate because she's really captive. That's what she is. And she can't negotiate because there is no other alternative than what the king has in mind to do. So she's really, she's really at the mercy of what's going on here. Think of all the people around her life who are making decisions for her. And some of you, that's your life. You feel like everyone is making decisions for you or everyone else's decisions have impacted your life. Some of your lives right now are still feeling the effects of decisions people made for you. You know, the fact that my father left you know, when I was 11, that affected my life for a long time, much longer than it had to, you know, but people's decisions, they affect you. So the king at the beginning of chapter two, he's kind of lonely. They, one of the, one of the uh, speakers, you know, just supposed that uh, this might be after the time, because it's several years after chapter one, it might be after the time that, that the Medes and Persians tried to attack Greece and tried to take Greece over. And that was a huge failure. And so he comes back and, you know, if you're a military man and you've blown it, boy, don't you want, don't you want to just be comforted by a woman? Except he's banished his woman. 
And so, interesting thing, he's got a harem already. We find out this man's in charge of the harem, but he's not thinking of anybody there. And so, people start making decisions that are going to affect Esther. I mean, it's interesting to me, in chapter 1, he talks to, he gets all his people that know the law together. In chapter 2, who comes up with this plan? Young men. Like, that's a surprise. The young men, you know what you ought to do? Get every good-looking girl in the kingdom and let them come. So these young men, they suggest a plan that's going to affect Heather. And then a man in power puts this plan into motion. A man with, with limitless power. A man who, who just speaks and it's going to be done because that's how the kingdom is then. So this empowered man makes a decision that's going to affect Heather. Uh, it's going to affect Esther. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Then he appoints, you have appointed men who go through the whole kingdom. Remember it says 120 provinces in chapter 1. These appointed men, they go through all the kingdom and they gather up these women. And then, including Esther. And then these official men, uh, this official man, Haggai, is going to guard her and he's going to evaluate her. Now think about this. These appointed men who go out through all the kingdom, they're going to go up to every one of these young girls we're saying, I would say probably like 14 to 20, that each room. And, and they're going to be evaluated. Every girl is going to be evaluated. Uh, yeah, you're too tall. Uh, yeah, too many freckles. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're not it. You don't make it. Just think of that. Think of that as you gather all the girls of your village and you have to go through that evaluation. Now you're being evaluated. Now you're being handed over to Haggai. Haggai's going to look at you and say, yeah, your skin's too light. Your skin's too dark. You're this. And he's going to come up with this year's worth of makeup procedure. I was reading this chapter, and I'm thinking, this is just another reason it's good to be a guy. You know, no makeup. No, just shave every couple of days. It's so nice that that's the fashion now, isn't it? You can shave every couple of days, comb your hair, brush your teeth, you're good to go. A year's worth of because Haggai, this man who's in power over you, decides what you need to do to look better, to look good enough for our king. And then he's going to direct you back to this empowered man who's going to have his way. He's going to have pleasure at your expense for one night. And then this other appointed man, this other official, is going to just take charge of you for the rest of your life. And he's going to determine where you stay and what room you stay in and where you go and what you do. That is Esther's life. That is who she's at the mercy of, the, st the, stages, the stages that she's going, to go, she's going to go to. You can adjust your life to being at the mercy of others. I mean, the reality is we're all at the mercy of our, of our employer. We're all at the mercy of the policies, however that comes into. But that's normal. That's normal. When you've got someone in your life that's in charge and that wants to be in charge and that's unpredictable, boy, you can get used to living in that. If you're codependent, you have gotten used to living in that and trying to manage that. So if you get used to that, sometimes we get used to things God doesn't want us to get used to. He wants us to address that. He wants us to confront that. He wants us to, to grow in light of that. If, if your theme verse or your mantra is, it's not really that bad. 
you tell your friends how things are, and they, and they say, wow, are you going to do anything about that? And you always come back with, well, it's not that bad. If you live in not that bad, you may want to do something about that. But if you live in not that bad, you tend to put a spin on things that's more positive than it should be. Like, okay, so it's not that bad. So these girls, they're used for one night. But think about it. They get, they're set for life, these girls. They're set for life. They're going to live in a palace the rest of their life. They're going to have servants the rest of their life. They're going to have great clothes the rest of their life. In fact, if you were part of the harem at that time, whenever the king traveled, you'd tra- he'd take the harem with him because you never knew who he'd want or what mood he would be in or whatever. So the whole harem, so you're going to travel, you're going to have food, and if there's any kind of shortage in any other part of the kingdom, not where you are, you're going you're gonna to have... You're going to have plenty of food. You're going to have things that can keep you beautiful because that's why you're there. So it's not that bad. Except you will never marry and and you will never have children and you will never go home and your going in and out is going to be extremely limited because you see at the end when you're handed over to the man in charge of concubines, you're assigned a place and he limits your going in and out. And more than likely, you're never going to see the king again because he has to call you by name. Do you see that at the end of verse 15? She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So so I did this. It said in Esther chapter 1, 120 provinces. And I said, let's let's really lowball that and say they got 25 girls from every province. Remember it said from India to Ethiopia? That range, you got 25 girls in 120 provinces, that's 3,000 girls, new girls added to the harem. The likelihood that the king is going to remember your name and and have you come back is pretty slim. And so you're never going to see the king again. So you're just going to live out your life in this part of the palace with all the other, all all the other girls, all the, the rest of the harem. The reality is that you went through a year of becoming beautiful and at the end of the year you were told it's not good enough. That's, that's the umbrella that you live underneath. You're not good enough. You had your shot, but you're not good enough. So, so those of you, I'm really burdened for, for, for those of you that live with, it's not that bad. But you've got to really spin the things around you to stay there. And, and sometimes it's very hard to open our eyes to, this really is bad. This isn't right. This is, I, should, I should deal with this. I should confront this. I should talk to this person. I should think more of myself. However we go with that, boy, you have to, see, you have to take, lift that out of, out of this. Sometimes we feel like God has abandoned us when the whole time he's trying to empower us. He, he's trying to, to move us on. We're living God. Where are you? And God is saying to us, where are you? You know, here I am, and, and this is what I'm trying to do. So you go through this, this book, and one thing you see, or you go through the chapter, one thing you see is that an unseen God, even though he doesn't show up anywhere in the chapter, he can still give you favor. Because you find that through this thing. Things are happening to Esther, and she's being taken advantage of. She's been taken. She's a captive, but then she's taken. Now she's placed here. She, she uh, has her, her time with the king and is used by the king. It's just interesting. People in authority, they have power and they use it for their pleasure. That's really the, the words of this chapter, isn't it? 
when you have, when you have a man in power who wants to be driven by what will please him, boy, things are going to happen to other people. But you still have favor, and that's where God shows up, just like he did for Joseph. Remember, Joseph, it isn't the life he wants, but he's sold by his brothers to these slave traders, and he gets to Egypt and, and is bought by this man who's a military man, who's a government man, and he progresses. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph. And he'll even say that the people around Joseph could tell that God was with him. And so he keeps getting promoted. And then, you know the Joseph story, uh, his employer's wife accuses him of trying to rape her falsely, and so he's thrown in jail. But when he gets in jail, the superintendent likes him and can tell that God is with him. The story says that. The Lord was with Joseph. And so he advances in the jail, and he becomes really running the jail as an inmate. And when he's in there, these two men come in with dreams, and he interprets their dreams, and then they just forget about him. But the Lord is with Joseph. Boy, you, never, you don't find that here in, in Esther 2. Never said, there was never a phrase, but the Lord was with Esther, you know, she was gathered, but the Lord was with her. You just don't find that. But you find, you find God showing up here. You know, it's easy to think, like I was saying, he's not with you like he's with others. But he's with you exactly like he's with others. Because he can't, he can't be any less than that. And so Esther finds favor. In verse 9, it says, the young woman, when it's talking about Haggai, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And then it says in verse 15 that when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Ibal, to, to go into the king, she asked nothing except what Haggai, the eunuch who had charged women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now think about that a minute. Obviously I'm not a woman, but I've heard about women. You have 3,000 women with, with a shot of one of them being, you know, winning The Bachelor. 3,000 women together with a shot of one of them coming out queen. What's the word for that? I mean, what? You're going to have some interesting dynamics in that room. You're going to have some serious undercutting, you know? Anybody seen my cream today? You know, whoa, where'd all my clothes go? You know, they said when the part of the 12 months would be if you were in the king's harem, you would probably either be taught to sing or to dance or to play an instrument because that you would be part of the entertainment when they had functions that would come on. And so during this year, you're being trained, not just becoming more beautiful, you're learning a skill that, you know, the king and his court would need. You have 3,000 really, if we dial it down, teenage girls in a competition. And it tells you that Esther won the favor of all of them? That's God. That's God. I mean, I think, I think we watched one or two seasons of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Oh, my goodness. That's with, like, what, six or ten? Three thousand. And it says... You know, in the scripture, she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. All the women, all the employees, all the people around the king. She was winning favor in their eyes. And then the last part of, of 17, it says when she has her time with the king, 
she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the, more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her. So you see, this unseen God who seems not to have shown up navigating this thing so that she's the one. But even beyond that, I think God does something in the king's heart because go back to the beginning of verse 17. It isn't just that she pleases him. The king loved Esther more than all the women. He loved her. He's using her, but then it moved from that to something much deeper. You know, you find the word, you find the words for love three times in the book of Esther. You find it to tell you that Vashti was lovely to look at, to tell you that Esther was lovely in form, but then to tell you that the king loved Esther. See, an unseen God, when God, when God isn't showing up in your life, when you're having a hard time finding where he is, he can still be working all around you and giving you favor with the people that you need favor and beyond favor. So the king loved her. God, I need your help here. Where are you here? He can be helping you in ways that it's going to become obvious later on. This, the problem is, like with Joseph, so he's a slave, and the favor he gets is he gets be, to be made the head slave. And then he gets put in prison, but the favor he gets is that he's the lead prisoner. You know, the reality is that sometimes, you know, the favor you get isn't always the favor you want. I mean, Joseph could easily be, God, this is really good. I just don't want to be a slave anymore. Okay, let me rephrase that. I don't want to be a prisoner either. You know, the favor you get isn't always the favor that you wanted. Esther, here's Esther in this thing. God, I, I don't want to just be a, I don't want to be a captive girl anymore. Okay, no, I didn't want to be the queen to this erratic pagan king either. But those are the ways that God is showing up. He's showing up with favor that's opening doors to places that he needs you to be in. And that's, that's one of the, the themes that weaves its way through Esther is that God is doing something and he's putting people in place for something that's going to happen later on. If you can be patient and hang on to that. So an unseen God can show you favor. An unseen God can still guide you. He can still show up and, and make sure you where it is that you need to be or, or make sure that you have key pieces of information that you need. You, you see this piece when, when Mordecai gives her this one word, this one thing that she didn't really know. In verse 10, it says, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. She hadn't told them she was Jewish. You know, because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. You're reading Esther chapter 2, and it's like, huh, okay. And you just keep going on to the story. But just like in your story, there are these pieces of wisdom, there's these insights that God is going to give you that are going to play an important role later on. Because even though you don't see him, he can still guide you. If you're willing to listen to the people that he's put in your life. And that's the huge piece for us. Because we want to... We want to live it Billy Joel's way. You know, go ahead and speak your mind, just not on my time. You know, I don't care what you say anymore. It's my life. But God is putting people in your life that are going to speak into your life. And they're going to say things that don't really seem like they matter right now, but they're going to be really significant to you down the road. That was, that was an important lesson to me as a young pastor to realize that what I'm preaching might not be for what somebody needs today, but it might be what you need next month because the God who we believe is the great orchestrator is orchestrating your life and so people are speaking into your life. 
You know, the messages that you hear, things that are shared, they might not be for right now, but you need to tuck those away because God is orchestrating that. Things that are said to you at lunch today, that you, you know, those things you hear and you think, huh, you need to hang on to that because God is guiding you. He's putting you in a place that he needs you to be, which is, which is part of this, this other piece, isn't it? Is, is that sometimes we feel like we're at the mercy of others, but we may be God's mercy to others because he's putting you in a place that he needs you to be so that he can show mercy to other people. That's what's happening through the book of Esther. Chapter one, who cares? Where's God? But who cares? It's just a pagan party. Chapter two, that's interesting. That's interesting. She, she wins. She's queen. Okay, good. But God is setting things up because he's trying to get to a place where he can show mercy to people. But he has to have Mordecai and Esther in place for that to happen. And that's going to mean, the way God chooses to do it, that they're not sure where he is. That he's going he's gonna to be kind of hard to find in the moment. And if God is hard to find in your moment and, and you feel like you're at the mercy of others and you're tired of being at the mercy of others, can you patiently hang on to your story? Can you patiently move, faithfully move, and allow God to play that out in his time? Because that's the book of Esther. He's going to play this out in his time. And, and at the end of the book, you're, we're going to have this wow moment when we see it all fit together. But we're only going to get there if Mordecai and Esther can patiently keep moving forward faithfully, believing that God, I don't see him, but he's, he's doing something, that he's putting me where I need to be, that he's giving me the guidance that, I, that I've got to have, maybe not now, but it's guidance I'm going to need later, that he's going to open doors, going to give favor where it needs to be favor. I just need to be patient, and I need to keep believing, and I need to keep moving forward may feel like this is a mess, but I, but I have confidence in this, in, this, in this God who looks invisible, but who's orchestrating things for me. I need to believe that that can happen. When your life is in an unfair spot, when you feel like your life is at the mercy of other people and those people are unpredictable, then can you believe that you're part of a larger story that God is, is doing? And can you be at peace that the story is not about you? It's about God, and it's about what he will do and how he will allow you to experience himself and good things in his story. Most of our struggle is we're trying to make the story about us. God, I'm willing to serve you, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm willing to let you use me and show mercy to other people, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to draw some boundaries here. And God always just says, well, if you want the pen, take it. But either I write it or you write it. We don't share it. So you have, this, you have this mess that's going on here, but God is working his plan that's going to come together so well. Those of you who know the story of Esther, you know how everything fits together. You know, next week we come back and we see this kind of random thing that happens, and then we find out not so random. You feel like maybe life is a little bit random for you right now. It's not. I can promise you, promise you, it's not feel like your life is at the mercy of others and you may need to evaluate the others in your life and who you've allowed into your life but if those people are there and there's just not really much you can do then welcome to Esther you need to just believe God 
you've got me here as part of a plan you were working out because you want to show people mercy. So I surrender to that. It's not about this king. It's about the king of kings. So, Father, we thank you that you are. When we, talk, when we look at these kings, we think of our, uh, the presidents or the premiers or the rulers of the world. We, we're so thankful to know you, you rise above them all. Think about our brothers and sisters in Korea, you know, this morning, and just what an erratic and unpredictable and powerful man that rules over that nation, and it's just driven that, that country into the ground. And yet they follow you day by day by day, believing that, that you're going to turn some good thing, that it's going to be worth it. So we just want to piggyback that faith. We want to take our situations and our circumstances and believe that you rule over them and that you're using them for good and that you're using us as, as part of what you're doing. So, Lord, for those who, who that phrase, living at the mercy of others, for whom that resonates, for whom it's been a hard season or maybe a hard life, I pray you just pour fresh love and peace and patience into them. I pray for wisdom and boldness for those for whom they're living at the mercy of others, but that's not your plan. I pray that you'd, you would help them to know you're leading. What are they supposed to do? Put the right people around them to lead them into what you do have. And for those living at the mercy of others, Lord, where that's just the way life is and it's structured, I pray you give them wisdom and, and guidance. I pray you give favor. I pray you give a sense of you. And I pray that you'd use them to show mercy. Thanks for your incredible mercy. You saved us not because of works that we have done, but because of your mercy. And we receive that. Pray you'd use us to pass that on to the glory of Jesus. Amen. 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 You know, that's the gospel, isn't it? That we've lived at the mercy of ourselves or at the mercy of life. And God steps in and says, I can totally change your life and I can, I can deal with the mess that you've created of your life if you'll just turn it over to me. That's the gospel. If you'll believe that I have mercy to give you what you need, if you believe that I have mercy to bring you forgiveness and to deal with all of your sin, that's the gospel. You just stop trying to earn favor and you accept favor from God. That's the gospel. That's what we talk about when we say, talk about being saved. So if you come today and, and you'd like God's favor, you'd like him to straighten out the mess your life might be in, he does that for everyone that just puts it all down and comes to him. Stops trying to tell God how good they are. Stops trying to make promises to God. Just understands, God, I have nothing to bring you, but you have everything to give me. And through Jesus, I want that. That's the gospel. So if you haven't done that, today's a great day to do that. Just wherever you are, just to have that conversation with God, and he'll welcome you into the kingdom and into the family. So, hey, can I get, you know, you a pretty open body, and I've really appreciated that God's kind of cultivated that here. If, if that kind of describes your season, the night is holding on to me. Just raise your hand. I'm just going to pray over that. Father, we want to walk in that trail of people that have loved you and followed you for thousands of years, that the Lord is good, and his loving kindness endures forever. It endures in the middle of this season over, you know, over my brothers and sisters who feel like this is night. 
But even in the night, you show up faithfully. Even in night, you've, you've put those worship songs in the Psalms about, you know, at night you speak and at night you guide and even the darkness becomes as light to you. And so I just pray for, yeah, I pray for just a strong sense of you in the night until, until that season ends, until you bring it to its good end. I pray for clarity to know what to do if, if it's night that, that we've created ourselves so you can just, you can just show up in, with the brilliance of who you are in the middle of it. I pray that there would be such a conviction that even when the night is holding on, you are holding on. Yeah, you said, Jesus, you said, you know, that, that we were in your hand and that we were then in the Father's hand. There was that double-handed grip. I pray there'd be a confidence of those who just feel like they're out in the dark on their own, that they know they're not. I pray that you'd allow there to be a spirit of humility over our church family for those who, who really need someone to pray over them, that there'd be that freedom to come and just have someone on the prayer team pray, that they'd get that clarity or that sense of you, that, that guidance that that they don't even know they're going, the person doesn't even know they have, and yet they're going to say something some way that you'll use in power. And so, yeah, we pray you'd, you'd use us to bring light to those who walk in darkness and that we'd experience mercy, but beyond that, we bring mercy. mercy. Here we are, we are available to you for every good purpose that you want to use us for. So use us to your glory, Jesus, because that's what we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.